Turn, if you would, to the 13th chapter of the book of Romans. We started the 13th chapter last week. Is this on? Is this on? Yeah. Can you hear me now? <laughs> we started the 13th chapter last week. I hope I didn't get too many people mad at me. Uh, the 13th chapter begins with a discussion about our relationship with authority, namely the government. It was interesting the way it worked out, and it was totally unplanned on anybody's part, but you got to hear it in here, and then you got to go hear it again in the sermon. Um, I guess Ted is stealing my notes or something. (laughs) But to wrap up last week's lesson, I will give you Ted's conclusion if you missed the sermon last week. We are to pray for all government officials. We are commanded to pray for them. In the Romans 13 passage, we are commanded to give them honor and respect. I know that I upset several people last week when I commented that we were to show honor and respect to the President of the United States. Uh, We had a discussion about, well, it's to the office, not the person. Well, that may be true, but the person is in the office. You can't escape by using that as an excuse. Ted's second point, show patriotism for both kingdoms. We do, in fact, live in a heavenly kingdom. I believe that the passage in Romans was given because some people believed, okay, now I'm in the kingdom of God. I don't have to pay attention to the kingdom of this world. I don't have to pay my taxes. I don't have to obey the civil authorities. We do owe a certain allegiance to both. Ultimately, our allegiance is to God and to Christ. And when the two come into conflict, when the state orders us to do something that violates the word of God, we obey God rather than men. We are to exercise our great privilege as Americans and vote. These are voters' registration cards. If you don't have one, here they are. We do have privileges that God has given us to participate in our government. In fact, last week, if you remember, we discussed that it's kind of interesting. We are to obey the authorities. There is a sense in which we, the people, are the authorities, which gets into a whole different discussion about what it means to rebel against authority. In my opinion, we just don't like authority. Uh, Next point, get involved in political action efforts. Exercise the freedoms that you are given. Go do something. Don't sit at home and complain. Go do something. And if you don't know what to do, I've got some people you can talk to, okay? But the bottom line, trust in God, not government, to meet your needs. You are not going to solve the world's problems by legislation. We are going to solve the world's problems with the gospel. So last week we covered our relationship with authority. I got some people mad because of, uh, as I said, talking about uh, honoring uh, our president. Uh, We talked about is there a time when it is okay to rebel against the government? And I presented both sides of the argument, one side which says no, based on this passage. Number two, okay, if the government's not doing what it's supposed to do, then we have the ability to do that. And we had a brief discussion about the American Revolution, and I presented both sides of it. And after class, I had several people come up, but you didn't tell us which one was right. (laughs) And I'm not going to tell you today either, just to get you to think about it. It is an interesting topic, and you could look at all the Scripture dealing with our relationship with government, with those in authority over us. We're not going to do it today. We're going to move on. Verse 8 of chapter 13. Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Owe no one anything. It's interesting because if you uh, go backwards a verse, 
It says, pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. And then it says, don't owe anybody anything. What does he mean by that? Well, to me, it's like he's working his way through this thought, and he goes, okay, we owe people certain things, but what we really owe them is love. All those other things need to be taken care of. If you owe somebody taxes, pay your taxes and you're done. But you will always have an obligation to show love to those around you. Because by showing love, you have fulfilled the law. And that's today's lesson, or at least the first half of today's lesson. How showing love to those around us fulfills the law that God has given us. Let's keep reading. Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandment, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does does no wrong to the neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Okay, first point. Love your neighbor is the summary, not the replacement for the law. What do I mean by that? There are those who would have us believe that the Old Testament was all about rules and regulations. Do, 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 don't, 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 do, don't, do, don't, don't. The New Testament is all about love. Love, 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 and forget those silly rules. That's not his point. His point is if you take those rules that God has given us and you make a summary of them, that summary is love your neighbor. That's the summary. Why is this important? What does it mean to love my neighbor? Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't murder. Don't covet. Those are the ones that are in the example that he gives us. That's the fulfillment of the law. It's not the replacement of the law. In fact, the instruction, what is the summary? You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Where does that come from? Where does that sentence come from? Well, you would say it comes from Christ. Where did Christ get it? From the book of Leviticus. The book of Leviticus says this is the summary of the law. Love your neighbor as yourself. Let me give an example. It says thou shalt not commit adultery. So we have two couples, couple A and couple B. The man of couple A decides to have an affair with the woman of couple B. Okay? You got the picture, right? I had a Sunday school teacher one time tell me, the class, we were talking about sexual immorality. And he said, fornication is sex outside of marriage. Adultery is sex within marriage. And he stopped. And one of the other teachers said, wait a minute. (laughs) Sex within marriage with someone you're not married to. He kind of neglected that part. (laughs) Eh. Oh, well. So the man in couple A is having an adulterous relationship with the woman of couple B. Now, is the man in couple A showing love toward his wife? by violating the covenant relationship he has with her. No, there is no love there. He is demonstrating that he does not love his neighbor as himself by violating the relationship that he has with his wife. Number two, is the man showing love toward the husband of the woman that he's having the adulterous relationship with? No, he is violating his trust by violating his covenant that he has with his wife. Number three, is the man 
showing love to his adulterous partner by encouraging her to participate in behavior that violates the word of God. No. On all counts, on all counts, he is not showing love to any of these people. And at that point, you can start bringing in the children of couple A and the children of couple B and the relationships of couple A and the relationships of couple B. It's all falling apart. But let me tell you the modern thought on this, okay? But he loves her. It's okay because he loves her. Isn't it all about love? We've discussed this in here at length. To the modern individual, to the modern society, love is an emotional response. At this point in time, I happen to have good feelings towards you, therefore I love you. And all the rules and regulations go down the tube because love conquers all. How many movies have you seen where that is the theme? Don't tell me about Rules and pieces of paper that define marriage and all those worthless things. We love each other. And love has no context. It has no rules. It has no requirements. Biblically, love is fulfilling the law toward other people. How do I love you? By doing what I ought in my relationship with you. Now, is there an emotional component of love? Of course. Of course. I ought to have an emotional response to my wife. That's good. That's proper. But the emotional response is not what drives the behavior. What are we to give people? Love. What is love? Love is the summary of the law. By giving love, I have fulfilled my obligation to the people that I come in contact with. Even if... They don't know it. What does that mean? Here comes the hard part. Go read the book of Proverbs. Over and over again, it'll talk about giving people a reproof. What does that mean? It means telling someone they're going the wrong direction. The path that you're going on leads to destruction, you shouldn't be on that path. Question, is love telling someone that they're on the wrong path even when they don't want to hear it? Or is love saying, well, you know, they're happy. They're having a good time. Eh, maybe it'll all work out for them. We have an obligation to be faithful to the word of God and the word of God says thou shalt not commit adultery it doesn't say thou shalt not commit adultery unless you really do have really warm feelings toward the other person (laughs) it doesn't say thou shalt not commit adultery unless well you know things just happen it doesn't say that There is no circumstance. There's no caveats in this this sentence. There are no circumstances where committing adultery is showing love to anyone. That's what this passage is teaching us. Owe no one anything except to love each other. What is our debt? What is our obligation to other people? To show them love. 
That's what we owe them. It's not just a peripheral thing that if you feel like it, then do this. That's what we owe other people. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Wait a minute. I thought we didn't have to fulfill the law. You don't have to fulfill the law to be saved because you can't fulfill the law to be saved. That's what Romans chapter 1 to 8 was all about. If I think that by fulfilling the law I can earn my salvation, I am in deep trouble because I can't do it. Having been saved, Romans 12, verse 1 and 2, we are to present our bodies as living sacrifices. We are not to be conformed to the image of this world. We are to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. That's what all of this is about. Putting our bodies aside, not conforming to what the world believes, having our minds transformed so that we can do what God would have us to do. Why do we do it? Because the law reflects the moral character of God, and we are to reflect the moral character of God. And that's how we show love to each other. We've talked about this at length earlier in the book of Romans. There are those who would have us believe that the only purpose of the law is to keep us from having fun. Wait a minute. To keep us from doing what we want to do. Wait, that doesn't sound right either. That's what we think. If God is the creator of the universe, and he is, if God tells us this is how the universe works, and this is what is best for you and me, then don't you think he knows what he's talking about? So if not engaging in adulterous relationships is better in all situations, then that's what we ought to do. Wait a minute. I've already blown it. Probably. Probably. If you haven't committed an adulterous relationship physically, you can go back to the Sermon on the Mount where it talks about if you do lust after a woman in your heart, you've already done it. What do we do then? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But don't act like it's okay. We do sin. Just don't act like it's okay when you do. And don't think that God has to change his laws to conform with your behavior. He's not going to do it. Society may do it. That's being conformed to the image of this world. Society can change its ideas all day long. God's not going to change. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. He gives four examples from the, if you will, the social half of the Ten Commandments. You know, there's the first part that are us and God, and there's a second part that are us and others around us. He kind of gave us the four easy ones for his point. How does not murdering someone... (laughs) demonstrate love that should be rather easy okay if i murder you i'm not probably showing love toward you not only that i'm not showing love toward your relatives i'm not showing love to those you have relationship with i am not showing love to god because i'm doing something that god has not given me the power to do that's easy stealing if i take your stuff I'm not showing love toward you. Coveting. That's interesting. Because we think of coveting as a very uh, mental thing, okay? You buy a new car. I act like I'm excited that you bought a new car. But inwardly, I'm, "Mm, I really want your new car. Isn't that just an inward thing? Well, we need to acknowledge the fact that inward thoughts affect outward behavior. Always do, always will. You could have an interesting lesson taking the Ten Commandments and showing how each one of them 
demonstrates love. It gets more interesting when you're dealing with the first half of the Ten Commandments. You know, you shall have no other God before me. Do not take the Lord's name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day. Don't bow down to idols. That half of it, honor your father and mother. Here is the point. When I obey God, I am showing love to those around me. When I put God first, I am showing love to my wife and my children because I have my priorities in order. If I believe that I can violate the word of God without it having impact to those around me, I am naive. Bottom line, all of the law can be summarized in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, if you're a good Pharisee, and you would never admit to it one way or the other, right? If you're a good Pharisee, you're going to immediately ask the question, because they did, who is my neighbor? Remember the story that Jesus told after that question was posed to him. He told the story of the Good Samaritan, where the man was injured and the religious leaders didn't help him, but the Samaritan, and if you want to put it in modern context, instead of Samaritan, take the worst group of people you can imagine, because that's what they were to the Jews, the Samaritan came and helped him. And Jesus turned to the crowd and said, okay, who acted like a neighbor in this situation? The religious leaders were trying to compress what was meant by neighbor, smaller and smaller, to the point that it was only people just like me who acted like me who were nice to me and got along with me. The rest of you, to heck with you. Jesus was saying, let's broaden this. Let's continue to broaden this. Let's broaden it some more. Who am I to love as myself? My neighbor. Who is my neighbor? Who does God bring you in contact with tomorrow? That's your neighbor. What am I supposed to do with that person that God brings me in contact with tomorrow? I am to love them as I love myself. Because if I do that, I fulfilled the law. But what does it mean to love that person? You don't take their stuff. You don't think about taking their stuff. You don't murder them. You don't hate them because hate leads to murder. You don't commit adulterous relationships. You don't think about committing adulterous relationships because thinking about adulterous relationships leads to adulterous relationships. You don't bear false witness against them. You don't lie to them. You don't think about lying to them. And doing that demonstrates that you have love toward them, your neighbor the person that God brings you in contact with tomorrow. (sighs) Is that easy? No, not at all. I have enough trouble demonstrating love to my wife and children. The dog, none. Okay? Every morning I tell the dog, I don't love you. As I'm petting her vigorously and she just loves it. We are to broaden who we show love to. And we are to get out of our minds this idea that when I come in contact with someone, I can do whatever I want. Now, the odds are you're not going to murder them because you are worried you couldn't get away with it. Let's face it, there's some people that, if you thought you could get away with it. (laughs) 
We're not supposed to have those thoughts. We're not supposed to go down that path. Because by showing love, we fulfill the law. By fulfilling the law, we reflect the moral character of God. And that's what we are called to do. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. As I said, and I'll repeat it, love does no wrong. Sometimes the loving thing to do is to present the word of God. You're going down a path that will lead to destruction. Our world wants us to believe that love is an emotional response. If somebody's happy living in their adulterous relationship, we're supposed to smile and show up for the tea party. Question, is that the loving thing to do? If you do in fact believe that that path leads to destruction? The answer is no. There's no love in there at all, if you really believe. Now, if you don't believe, then sure, go do whatever you want to do. Hmm. Sometimes loving means confronting. But when we confront, we have to do that in love too. (laughs) And you know the difference in that. Some of us are much too gleeful when we point out the sins of others. Sometimes we rejoice too much while pointing out the sins of others. Jesus wept when he looked at the people because they were lost and in need of a shepherd. When we confront the sins of the world, and I'll add right here, it's really not your job to confront the sins of the world, but... God brings you in contact with people and you deal with the people that God brings you in contact with. Okay? That's what we have to do. We do it with the heart of love, which means we are looking out for their good, not their punishment. We're not using the law as a club to beat them over the head with. We're telling them that the path that they're on leads to destruction and they need to change. And we desire and want them to change. Sometimes we're just too happy to see them go off the cliff. Well, what do you expect? They're whatever, fill in the blank. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake up from your sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires." Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come to wake up from your sleep. We should know he's not talking here about physical sleep. Sleep throughout Scripture is a metaphor. It's a metaphor for a couple of different things. One of them is death. One of them is living in kind of a moral stupor. What he's going to talk about is being in the darkness rather than in the light. Once again, the darkness is a picture of moral, oh, well, whatever. A moral stupor that you just kind of wander around running into things. Have you ever been somewhere where it was totally dark and you didn't know where you were and you just kind of walk around running into the furniture. That's the picture that Paul is using to describe people who are conformed to the image of this world. They're in the darkness. They're walking around, running into things, and they don't have the light 
necessary to see the true path. So, Paul is telling us, wake up because the time is near. What time is that? Well, the right answer is probably the return of Christ. It is nearer than it was when you started. That's an easy observation. If you became a believer when you were eight and you're now older, (laughs) you are nearer to the return of Christ. You're also nearer to the time that you will meet Christ. Y'all all ready for that, right? I mean, this isn't a surprise, right? We are approaching our meeting of Christ. So if I'm here, and that's there, and I'm closer to it than I was yesterday, what should I be doing with my life to prepare for that? In fact, it's interesting. It says, your salvation is nearer than it was when you began. We've talked in here before. Actually, we talked about it at the beginning of the book of Romans. The word salvation in Scripture is used in several different ways. Basically, we know that salvation encompasses a lot of different things. Remember that nice discussion we had in chapter 9 that we're going to ignore about predestination and Jesus calling us and us responding and being justified and we live in this world and we are being sanctified and when we die we will go to heaven and we will be glorified. All of this process is salvation. Sometimes the scripture talks about salvation as justification, the new birth, we are saved. So there is a sense in which the salvation is a past event. We accepted Christ. We were saved by the blood of Christ. It's done. In some sense, salvation is a current event. We are being saved because we are working out that salvation with fear and trembling. But there is a sense in which there is a completion that is to come, which is glorification. In this verse, he is talking about the completion of salvation, which is our glorification. When Christ returns or when we die, that time is nearer than it was when you started. However old you are, that time is nearer. However many years it's been since Christ died, that time is nearer than it was before. So how are we supposed to live our lives? We're not supposed to walk in darkness. We are to walk as if we had the light. Huh. How do we walk as if we had the light? We use the light that God has given us. What is the light that God has given us? The scripture, the Holy Spirit directing us how we ought to live our lives. We are to put off certain things and we are to put on certain things. It's interesting, if you've read the last half of the book of Ephesians, that's really what this talks about. You know, Paul is writing this, the book of Romans, somewhere in Asia Minor to the church at Rome. When he gets to Rome, he writes the book of Ephesians back to where he was, okay, to begin with. So, It's like he is hinting at it here, and you get to the book of Ephesians, and you get a more in-depth discussion of it. Let's go back to the passage. Besides this, you know the time, you know the time, that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. Do we know the time? Do we know the seasons? Do we know what's about to happen The sentence actually means you're aware of the right season. You're aware of the season that we're in. It's interesting contemplating this. Um, We do not live in an agrarian society, okay? I've never worked a farm. I have no desire to work on a farm, okay? We have electric lights. We have 
heating, we have air conditioning, and you know, while we can complain about the hot Texas summers, we sit in our nice cool room. When you complain about the cold winters, we sit in our nice warm room. Okay? It's like the seasons have all merged together because we act the same. But an agrarian society was very aware of what the seasons were. You know, it's like winter's ending. I had enough food to make it through the winter. I'm tired of being in this little house because it's freezing cold outside. And the seasons determine the actions that you do. That's what he's talking about here. The season is coming. You need to be ready. You need to be aware of the time that you live in. It is time to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. What's this distinction? We're living in the night. This world is in the night. The day is coming when Christ will be revealed. What are we supposed to do? We're supposed to live like we would live in the daytime. We are not to be conformed to the image of this world because they're in the darkness. Throughout the scripture, we see this picture over and over again of the world being in darkness. Remember in John, Jesus heals the blind man. And it happens. But there's like two or three chapters where Christ talks about that as a picture of the blindness of the world that we live in. What are we supposed to do? We're supposed to walk in the light. We're not supposed to be in the darkness. We have been given the truth. Act like it. Don't be conformed. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness. Cast off the works of darkness. What are the works of darkness? Those are the works. Well, that's sin. He gives a list. Put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime. Here are the things that we're supposed to cast off. This is a representative list. It is not a complete list. Not in orgies and drunkenness, um, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. These are the kinds of things that we are supposed to put off. Huh. Orgies and drunkenness. Okay, I'll put that one off. That was easy. <laughs> not in sexual immorality and sensuality. Well, I'm pretty good there. <clears throat> unless you look in my head at my brain and see what television shows I'm watching and you see the picture, right? It is easy for us to read a list like this and think, oh, he's really talking about those people over there and they're really bad. Let's go beat them over the head with us. We live in a very sensual world. What does that mean? It excites the senses. That's the purpose of it. Remember how this, how chapter 12 started? Present your body a living sacrifice. Why? Because the body, the loves of the flesh are not to drive and command and control our behavior. It's just not supposed to do that. The things of the Spirit are to control. And in order to do that, we have to take our physical body and don't kill it. We present it a living sacrifice, but we present it to Christ for His purposes. And then you get all these great, horrible things, orgies, drunkenness, sexual immorality, and sensuality, and then he just wants to be meddling, and he picks up quarreling and jealousy.
you know, my mind is sitting here going, there's a huge jump between orgies and a little quarreling. Okay, let's face it. There's a big jump. But is there really? It's interesting in one of C.S. Lewis's books, he kind of, he doesn't say it's okay, but he kind of poo-poos this whole problem with sexual immorality. I mean, it's, it's a sin. He knows it's a sin. But as he said, it's an easy sin. It's obvious. What about pride? Anger? That stuff that's in your inside that just eats you alive. And a lot of it is very respectable in our society today. You know, we, we like people who are a little prideful. Kind of, you know, makes them want to go do great things. And if they work for us, great. They'll go do great things. No. We in our minds, put orgies way over here and a little quarreling, and we don't realize that a little quarreling is what produces so many contentious relationships in our world today. At this point, we could go back to talking about politics, but we're not going to do it. Put aside quarreling. You mean I'm, I, I'm not supposed to speak the truth? Yes, you're supposed to speak the truth. But what's the difference between quarreling and speaking the truth? Quarreling means I want to win the fight. Okay? I don't care what it takes. I don't care what words I have to use. I don't care what relationships I have to damage. As God is my witness, I am going to win this fight if it's the last thing I do. That's quarreling. Why? Who cares whether you win the fight or not? God is going to win the fight. <sighs> Set aside quarreling and jealousy. Huh. Just don't do it. Why? Because that is being conformed to this world. It is not being transformed. We are to put off and we are to put on the armor of light. That's an interesting picture. The armor of light. Over in Ephesians, we have a detailed description of the armor of God. You know, the breastplate of righteousness, the sword of truth. The, you, you've, you've seen the picture before, right? What do we need to take from this? What is the purpose of armor? This is an easy question. Protection. Why do you need protection? Because you're going into a fight. Some of you may have gone to, you know, nice European castles. And over, you know, in the castle, they've got this armor. It's made out of gold. It's got jewels on it. It is gaudy-looking stuff. And you can tell that that armor was not made for a fight. That armor was made so that the king could put it on while they had his picture painted. Okay? That's not what is being talked about here. We are going into a fight, and we need the armor of God to protect us from the danger. Now, this is weird to me. We just finished a discussion about love. I'm going to love, I'm going to fulfill the law by loving everyone I come in contact with. If I do that, aren't they going to like me? No. They're going to take their slings and arrows, and they're going to throw them at you because you are not conformed to the image of this world. And if you're not prepared, you'll either A, start slinging them back, quarrelsome, or B, 
in despair, you will run away, lock yourself in your closet, and pretend to be a great Christian because you don't come in contact with any other people because people are bad. The reality is Christ came because God so loved the world. Christ came and they killed him. Paul came to share the gospel because he was enamored by the love of God to save the people and they beat him, they stoned him, and finally they killed him. But he did not despair because he had the armor of God that protected him. Did it protect him like it kept him from getting killed? It protected him so he could continue to be effective in the place that God had put him. We are to put off and we are to put on. We are to walk not as in darkness, but we are to act as in the light where we can see what's in front of us. It's like you live in a house and for some reason you just don't want to turn on the lights. And to make the analogy even better, it'd have to not be your house. Okay? So you get up in the middle of the night you want to go to the bathroom, and you know it's somewhere over there, and you kick your toe on this, and you run into that, you trip, trip over that, and finally you make it. And the host, whosoever house this is, hears about this in the morning and says, why didn't you just turn the light on? <laughs> That's the picture that we have right here. Turn the light on. But put on... And here it all is, the conclusion. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Chapters 1 to 8 told us we could not be saved on our own. You just can't do it. You can try to be righteous. You can try to fulfill the law. You can try to do anything you want. It isn't going to work. Give it up. Christ will save you. The reality is we can't live the Christian life on our own. We saw at the middle of chapter 12 this discussion of the body and Christ and God giving gifts to the body because we need each other. But we also need to put Christ on. Remember back in chapter, what was it, chapter 6, where we talk about being in Christ with his death and resurrection and we no longer are slaves to sin because of it. We are in Christ. Act like it. Really do ask yourself, what would Jesus do? The Holy Spirit resides in us to tell us what Christ would do. We are to put on the armor of God because that's the fight that's coming. But the thing that is going to see us through is when we put Christ on. What does this mean? It means we better know what Christ was like. How do we do that? We study the scripture. We meditate on the scripture. We reflect on the scripture. We pray that God will illuminate to us what needs to be done. I've told you this before in here. You know, there are scriptures that I read, and I have no idea what they mean. I don't. And ten years later, ten years later, some situation will occur, and this little voice will go, you know that verse you didn't understand? That's what it means. And you go, duh. But you need to saturate yourself in the scripture so that when that situation occurs, the Holy Spirit will say, remember that? Yep, that's it. Do it. Hmm. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Make no provision for the flesh. No backup plans. You know, it's like I decide I'm going to go on a diet. But just in case I should, you know, 
want something, I'm going to stock the fridge with some really good desserts just in case. You never know when an emergency might happen. That's the way we are. I'm going to follow Christ. I'm going to do it his way. But just in case, I'm going to toe the line to what the world does because I don't want the world getting upset at me, right? Who would want that? How am I going to witness to them if they're upset at me? One of my opinions, and this is just an opinion, is that I, we, I, spend our entire lives seeing how close I can be to being transformed while at the same time being conformed. And I'm looking for this intersection between these two circles on this Venn diagram. I was a math major. We did Venn diagrams. On this Venn diagram, there's got to be an intersection, and I'm going to find it, and I'm going to live there. What that means is I'm trying to walk in both worlds. I am making a provision for the flesh. What is it? It's a lack of faith. Yeah, I know salvation is near. I know God's going to save me. I know that, but you know, there's some really fun things I want to do. And we try to find that position where I can be conformed to the image of Christ and be conformed to this world at the same time. And you know what? It's impossible. Take on no semblance of evil. Hmm. Why? Because to the extent that I am not being conformed to the image of Christ, I am not showing love to those around me. That's odd. Not really. God has put me in a place at a particular point of time. He has certain people that run into contact with me on a regular basis or on a totally accidental basis. And if I am not where God wants me to be, then I cannot show love to those around me. Hmm. What are we supposed to do? Today, tomorrow, the next day, you're going to run into somebody. Hopefully not physically, but metaphorically. Show love to them. That doesn't necessarily mean that you hug, hug them and give them all your money. It means... Looking at what can meet their needs in Christ. Let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you that you have given us the provision. I pray, Lord, that we would walk as in the light and not in the darkness. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.